Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Thank you so much um, to the worship team as, as always. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So today, um, yeah, where shall I start? <clears throat> Recently, a painting called The Village Lawyer which was a 17th century masterwork, masterpiece by the artist Peter Bruegel the Younger, was sold in a French auction house for 780,000 euros. Nothing remarkable about this, you may think, because if you know his works, and you know they're quite old, and that they are the works of a master, you would think, um, yeah, that's probably a reasonable, a good sum for it. But listen to the story. There's something remarkable about this story. A man called Marlo de Lussac, an auctioneer from the, from the company Daguerre Val de Loire was asked to estimate the price of a house for auction in northern France. And so he was looking around the house. And as he looked around the house, he came to the TV room. And, uh, as he, uh, and he saw behind the door of the TV room, partly obscured, this painting by Bruegel. He said, I started estimating this room. And when I turned back, I saw this painting. It was a very good surprise for me. De Lussac says he believes the, artist, the artwork was bought as an, as, as an authentic one, but over several generations had completely lost its authenticity within the family. And that's what's incredible, he said. We're giving them back this authenticity by saying, in fact, your artwork is real. So at some point in the generations, this painting that the French family owned slipped from being a precious masterpiece to being considered inauthentic, just a copy. They still apparently referred to it in the family as the Bruegel, but it was in their eyes no longer a real Bruegel. This, this household had an incredible old master's painting, but they didn't hang it above the fireplace in the main drawing room or somewhere like that. They hung it in the living room, in the TV room behind the door. And I've come to remind us this morning, I'm not going to say anything new to you today, nothing new, okay? But I've come to remind us today should any of us not quite realize it, that our God is real. He is real. I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning, you know, I need the real Jesus. As I go through the day, I need the real Jesus. As I get into bed in the evening, I want to know the presence of the real Jesus. Not a version of the Jesus that I've limited, dumbed down, or created from my own tiny past experience of God. I have to know the real Jesus, and we have to know the real Jesus. Our God is real. The Lord Jesus is real. The Holy Spirit, he's real. He's here. I don't want to have a relationship with Jesus who's created in my image. I want the real Jesus. And I've come to remind us that we must never, ever lose the wonder of the real Jesus this morning. You know. And so my message today is called The Tale of Two Households. I believe that these two households give us the key as to how to and how not to experience the presence of Jesus. And it's going to come from a passage that's quite likely to be familiar to most of us, I think, from 2 Samuel 6. And let's read verses 1 to 7 of 2 Samuel 6. And David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And he arose and went with all the people who were with him to Kiriath-Jerim to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, 
and Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the ark, before the Lord, with all their might, with songs, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put his hand out to, to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled and shook it. And the ark of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for touching the ark, and he died there by the ark of God. A sobering story, probably one we know so well. We're so familiar with details of it, aren't we? You know, the ark is being taken back to Jerusalem by David. It's a a distance, incidentally, of about seven miles from Kirith-Jerim to to, um, Jerusalem. And to make this this journey, the ark was put on this new ox cart, which interestingly is the same method of transport that the Philistines had used to to transport it from Ekron um, almost 100 years previously. And this means that the ark wasn't being carried correctly. It was meant to be on poles on the, um, being, being lifted by the priests because only, only priests at that time can, ca- can come near the ark and can carry the ark themselves because priests ref- reflect the image and likeness of God themselves. Anyway, so, so we see the, we see the um, picture of this, uh, of this uh, celebration, this procession in, towards Jerusalem. And there's gr- a great celebration and there's lots of joy and then, then they reach the threshing floor of Nacon, and one of the, op- the oxen stumble, and Uzzah reaches out his hand, touches the ark, and God strikes him down, right there. And it's familiar to us, this story, right? It's sobering. We could leave the story here. Everything that we've summarized, I've summarized in it is true, right? But we must go deeper to this, so I want to look deeper into this narrative today. It's interesting to me that Uzzah is struck down at the threshing floor of Nacon. A threshing floor, as you know, anyone know what a threshing floor is? Yeah, is where the wheat was separated from the chaff. And the way that it was separated was the thresher would throw what all looked like seed up in the air and the wind would blow away that which wasn't, which wasn't wheat but which looked like wheat and that was the chaff. It was the stuff which was lighter and less dense and thus the wheat was separated. And Nacon means smitten. And indeed, Uzzah is smitten by God in this place. He's judged at this threshing floor by the Spirit of God. Let's peel it back a bit further. We're told a little bit more about Uzzah. It says he's one of the sons of Aminadab, whose household the ark had been resting in on top of the hill at Kiriath-Jerim. Those aspects are repeated twice in the text we've just read, that he's the son of Aminadab and and the house is on the hill. The author renders both of these things significant. And if you look on Google Maps, you can find the spot. There's a church there now, which was put there at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, Aminadab's name means noble, and indeed his house was in a commanding position on the hill, overlooking everyone else in the whole region. We have to look back to 1 Samuel, almost 100 years earlier, to see how the Ark of the Covenant had ended up in his house. We probably know this story as well. You know the Philistines had previously captured the Ark, um, 
and as a result of it, they'd suffered torment and disease, and they'd gradually moved the ark around the five main Philistine towns, and they'd noticed that the torment and disease went with them as they, went, as they took the ark with them. And um, so they wanted to see if this was a coincidental thing or whether the God of Israel really was striking them with torment and disease. And they were, they were afraid, obviously, of this. And so they put the ark on an ox cart, and they harnessed it to two milking cows that had just carved, and the cows, instead of looking, looking after their calves, went straight into the Israelite territory, straight up the road to a place called Bet Shemesh. And the initial village um, where it arrived, they were overjoyed, they were jubilant to see the ark. But if you remember, they looked into it, and um, 70 of them were destroyed by God. So they were terrified of the ark and wanted others to take it. So then we read in 1 Samuel 7, 1 and 2, this. The men of, so the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the Ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Aminadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to have charge of the Ark of the Lord. And the Ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim for a very long time. And the Amplified puts that helpful bracketed note, nearly a hundred years through Samuel's entire judgeship, Saul's reign, and well into David's. So the ark was in the household of Abinadab, this man of influence for a very long time. And he's definitely a man of faith, we know that, because his son is called Eleazar, which means God is my help. Likely he's the most influential person in the area. He lives on top of the hill, above everybody else. It's interesting though, when we pick up this story in, in, in the time of David, Eleazar is no longer mentioned. You know, nearly a hundred years has passed and the generations have obviously changed. So when David comes to take the ark to Jerusalem, we have Uzzah and Ahio, his brother. They're the only two mentioned. And Ahio means brother, incidentally. So, um, so here's the point. At some point down the family line, the ark had lost its significance to the family. Similar to the, to the family in northern France who, who's, um, who were holding that, um, you know, who had that picture by Bruegel hung behind the the wall, you know, behind the door in the TV room, and they called it the Bruegel. This was still the ark, but somehow the present, God's presence in their home no longer resonated in the way it should. Perhaps they'd lost touch with the stories of the ark. Perhaps they'd failed to understand the reverence that was due to the ark, the very dwelling place of God. Perhaps they'd become distracted from the presence of God and ignorant of the power of God. There was definitely still some reverence there because when David um, came to um, get the ark, they were very enthusiastic about it and they drummed up this enthusiasm and they could put the ark on this ox cart um, and return it to Jerusalem with him. But they weren't, they weren't respectful enough, they weren't, reverent, they weren't reverential enough to obey God's instructions about the ark. This is a challenge that faces each one of us. And I think those of us who grew up in a Christian fam family, so I'm just going to move those cables out of my way. So, um, each of those who grew up in a Christ Christian family know this more, probably, because we're so familiar with things. We grow so accustomed to the presence of God in our homes that we fail to realize its significance. This is the challenge that faces all of us who are parents. You know, how do we pass on our faith to our children so that they receive it themselves? Every new generation has to know the reality of the presence of God for themselves. As they say, God has no grandchildren. You know. How many believing parents have I met and talked to 
kind of depressingly, who have this attitude that says, well, they're going to find it themselves someday, you know, but the enemy fights really hard to distract us from handling, from handing our faith on. And it's really interesting because the Jewish faith instructs this. We, we know we've read Deuteronomy, for example, you know, talk to your children about it, teach your children, teach your children, teach your children. Have you ever considered the effect of this? Consider it. When was the last time you met a Greek who worshipped Zeus? Or an Egyptian who worshipped the sun god Ra? I don't think anyone does still, right? But somehow, there's still Orthodox Jews who still worship Yahweh from thousands of years ago. And why do they do that? Because it was passed on to their children. It's generational. So that's, that's an amazing thing. And I don't say this to condemn any, any parents here because we know that the Lord is faithful to all his promises and he's going to bring any prodigals home. But we can also fall into this same trap ourselves of a fading faith, you know. We start our journey full of faith and enthusiasm and vibrant, but somehow over time we end up with hollow religion. And the thing about hollow religion is it can have all the outward form but none of the inward relationship of faith. It sounds good, it says the right things, it can even sing the right songs. Paul warns to, of such to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.7, they are ambitious to be doctors of the law, but they have no understanding of the words and terms they use or of the subjects about which they make such dogmatic assertions. You know, religiousness is the easiest thing to fall into. And so my question this morning is, how do we overcome familiarity so that our faith remains fresh and we really know the reality of what we're talking about day in, day out? What is the key to stop, to stop you know, our times of the Lord becoming religious rather than, rather than full of faith? The, the thing is, it's really a difficult one sometimes because habit is so good, but mere habit will not just do. You know, we don't want to just get into habit because habit is actually the very trick that we can fall into, which becomes empty and just process. So we need to have a pattern to meet with God, which isn't just about habit. And how do we do this? I know that there are lots of ways, and I know that all of us probably know lots of them. We could talk about thankfulness or praise or the word, and they're all true. And we know them all, I'm sure. But today I want to focus on the absolute key to unlocking the presence of God and living in increasing tangible presence throughout all our days. And this is the key to stop any gradual drift into religious form so that we remain totally intimate with him in relationship, deep and daily, every day with the living God, individually and as a fellowship. And I think we can find this key in the second of our households we're going to look at in our passage from 2 Samuel 6. And it's a big contrast to the household, household of Abinadab. And let's pick, pick the story back up. It's verse 8 of 1 Samuel 6. I don't know if you can get it up there, Jonathan. Mm. Thank you. Sorry, 2 Samuel 6. Yeah, yeah. David was grieved and offended because the Lord had broken forth upon Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah, the breaking forth upon Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to him in this, into the city of David, but he took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Amen. 
Look at this. The ark was in the household of Abinadab for nearly a hundred years, with little mentioned about it. But now look at the house of Obed-Edom. We see a complete contrast. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. 1 Chronicles 13, 14 also says, The Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. And Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century, recounts that before receiving the ark, Obed-Edom was a poor man of low estate. He didn't have much. But once the Lord blessed Obed-Edom, Josephus said he was exceedingly happy and the object of envy of all those that saw or inquired after his house. So the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole household. His household went from being that of a poor man with a lowly estate to the envy of his neighbours. 1 Chronicles 26 later tells us he had eight sons, excellent sons, who were fit for the service, it says, and his household eventually numbered 68. I guess that's all his grandchildren and such. Everything that belonged to Obed-Edom was blessed. He was so blessed and so exceedingly happy that everyone who met him, who saw him, who inquired after him, was envious. They wanted what he had. He was so blessed with abundance. CCF, shouldn't that be us? Shouldn't this be the case for us as followers of Jesus? That when people see us, they want what we have? That when they come across us, they're, they're stunned at how blessed we are and, and our very actions are a blessing to them. That the presence of the Lord in us makes them envious of us. And not only individually as individual families, although definitely as that, but also as a fellowship together because we're the household of faith. Ephesians 2.19 says, Therefore you are no longer outsiders, exiles, migrants and aliens, excluded from the rights of citizens, but now you share citizenship with the saints, God's own people, consecrated and set apart for himself. And you belong to God's own household. We belong to God's own household. You know, you don't have to look far to see the dysfunction in our nation. Yeah? Consider the protests, the strikes, the feelings that many people have that they're overlooked, that they're forgotten, that they're isolated, lonely, desperate, suicidal... Dysfunction usually begins in the home, which is why Satan attacks families so strongly. Yeah? So when people then, then go out of the home, the dysfunction that they've experienced in the home increases because they have to make their own, their own way in the world and they don't have the understanding or the tools to do so. You know, they, many people just have so little understanding of life, far less any spiritual understanding. You know, yesterday I went to a birthday party of an old friend I was at uni with. I've known her 30 years now. It's a long time, isn't it? Um, and we were in, reminiscing about the time we had at uni. You know, I went to the top university in the country to study art. It was the very pinnacle. It was the place to go. And we were talking about that. You know, everyone looks up to it. If you say where you've been to study art, they go, oh, really? You went there? Oh. You know, and, and uh, it's one of the most renowned unis in the whole world to study art. You know? And where did the people end up? You know, I was one of 26 people in my year, and two of them have since taken their own lives. But us, us together here, we belong to the household of God. We belong to the household of God. When people look at us as a fellowship, this will be what people want, yeah? We're too hidden in this room, do you know that? That's why we need a new place, because we're, we're, we're hidden here for a season. But once that season ends, we'll be in a place which is much more visible, you know. Because outsiders, outsiders have to see us and go, I want this. I need to have a place. I need a family home. And it's here, you know. 
and it's now. And then it's also permanent in heaven because Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. Mm -hmm. So the household of God, that's that's what we're part of. If I think back to my teenage years, I can remember the the house I grew up with with very fond memories. You know, we were there quite a few years as a family. And um, I'd love to go back there because it was my household. But you know what? I can't because it's no longer in my family. But our heavenly home is our hope and our certain future. How excited should that make us feel? Yeah? How excited? And even now we're part of a family of love who are under God's very own blessing. You know, even those parts of our families who don't yet know Jesus, they are constantly encountering him through us as they, as, as they experience his presence through us. We're so blessed. And why has this blessing come upon us? It's the fulfillment of God's promises to us. It's the new covenant. The result of God's promises um, is that he blesses us. How does this relate to Obed-Edom, you may ask? The story of Obed-Edom is one of these tiny little vignettes, these little pictures that we see throughout the Word of God, which points to this. And so what more do we know about Obed-Edom? I was looking, looking into this, and his name says a lot about him. Obed means servant. Edom, we know, means red, because if you remember, Esau was also called Edom on account of his red hair. But the root of the word Edom is dom, which means blood. So you can see why, why Edom means red. Yeah. So dom, which means blood. So that means that Obed, Edom's name, can mean servant of the blood. Kind of crazy, eh? And unpacking it reminds us the key of God's blessings on us. You see, Obed, Edom was the servant of the blood. He knew the importance of sacrifice and his own unworthiness to approach the presence of God without the shedding of blood. We don't know if he offered sacrifices. He he was quite possibly a Levite. But we do know that he definitely lived a life of sacrifice with the ark in his house. And with serving the presence of God came great joy as everything he had was blessed. So imagine that day when he received the ark. Imagine that day when he gets the ark, you know. There's a huge commotion going on. The noisy procession towards Jerusalem with 30,000 chosen men of Israel. I don't know who watched the coronation here last, you know, a week and a bit ago. Yeah? yeah. There were 4,000 people in that coronation procession, right? David had 30,000 chosen men. So that's seven and a half times the amount, you know, going up from... I mean, that, that, that line of people must have almost stretched to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Kiriath-Jerim. It's massive. You know, and imagine the noise, you know, the songs, the instruments. It says there were lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Imagine the joy, and then suddenly, bang, in the middle of it, Uzzah falls down and dies, and everything goes silent. Everything stops. The whole of Israel is suddenly in shock, and holy fear descends on them all. Obed-Edom is at his house. There's a knock on the door. There's the king of Israel outside. David doesn't want to continue to Jerusalem with the ark because he's in such awe and holy fear of God. Obed-Edom is to have the ark of God, he's told, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who's enthroned above the, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. The presence of God is going to come into Obed-Edom's house in his house. Imagine how much Obed-Edom revered the ark of God's presence. 
I mean, perhaps he even saw what happened to Uzzah. You know, the holy fear of God. David had sung earlier than this. You know, he composed that song, Psalm 34, before this point. Come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you to revere and worshipfully fear the Lord. I'm sure when he revisited that psalm, he did so with a new depth to his words. Although Obed-Edom is a tiny figure in the story of God, in these three months, I think that he roused David's envy and stirred his courage. David realized again that God can be approached intimately as long as the conditions are right. You have to approach with sacrifice knowing the value of the blood. Obed-Edom, the servant of the blood. 2 Samuel 6, 13. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the ark, that's sorry, the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with rejoicing. Obed-Edom shows us that the blessing comes through the presence, but the key to the presence of God is the body and blood of Jesus. There's no other way. So as a, as a servant of the blood, he shows us that. Without the blood of Jesus, we can in no way approach him. But with the cleansing blood of Jesus, we have been made holy, consecrated and sanctified through the offering made once for all of the body of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.10. 10. This means we can approach the presence of God. Hebrews 10.22. 20, Let us all come forward and draw near with true, honest and sincere hearts and in unqualified assurance and absolute conviction engendered by faith. By that leaning of the entire human personality on God in absolute trust and, and conviction in his, and confidence in his power, wisdom and goodness, having our hearts sprinkled and purified from a guilty conscience and our bodies cleansed with pure water. I'm going to go through that again. It's a long verse. Let us all come forward and draw near with true, honest and sincere hearts in unqualified assurance and absolute conviction engendered by faith by that leaning of the entire human personality on God in absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom and goodness, having our hearts sprinkled and purified from a guilty conscience and our bodies cleansed with pure water. You know, the blood of Jesus has washed us clean. He's wiped away our sin. You know, let's not get familiar with this. Let's not get familiar with this. His lifeblood was shed on the cross to give us new life. And so when Pastor Rod asked me, yes, last, that was last week, to summarize communion in three words, I was completely tongue-tied. How can I possibly even begin to scratch the surface of the value of Jesus' body and blood in three words? Perhaps his perfect sacrifice. But that got me thinking. Yesterday I was thinking about this. And I was thinking, there's an app you can get. Do you know it? It's called What Three Words? Okay, and the idea of what three words is that if you download this app, it's a location app. And so if you get into a, if you're in an emergency situation, you have this app on your phone, then you can tell the emergency services these three words and they'll know within every three square meters of the world where you actually are. So they've divided the whole of the world into, every, into, every, into three square meter pieces which have three particular words, kind of random words, kind of assigned to each spot. I hope when I get lost I've got that app on my phone, right? I haven't at the moment. But what three words are we located in? You know, think about it. Under the blood, three words. Forgiven and free, that's three words. Gazing in awe, 
sealed in covenant, seated in heaven. We could go on and on. I could ask everyone, everyone to come up with one. And the thing is that whereas that app, with that app, each of the three words indicates a different location, with our three words, it all indicates one location. And that is that we're in the blood of Jesus. We dwell in him and he in us. Our location in him never changes. Our location in him never, ever changes. John 6, 56. He who feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood dwells continually in me, and I, in like manner, dwell continually in him. Amazing. When Deji brought the word of the Lord to us, in January about God doing a new thing at the start of the year. I wonder what our first thoughts were individually when he said that. Was it like new church building? Um, was it like loads more people? Maybe something like that, you know? The first thing, the first aspect of a new thing is always an inward thing. And it's a spiritual and inward thing always before it becomes an outward thing. So the inward invisible must always precede the outward and the visible. And this was what happened in Obed-Edom's case. We're told of the physical blessings of his household, but they're all brought about by his attitude of humility and his service, his service in the presence of God. You know, we only see the outward blessing, but the outward blessing points to the inward attitude, the inward place that he's at, that yeah. attitude of humility, That's right. That's right. you know. And so to know the presence of God, we must use the key. The key is to dwell on the blood of Jesus. We must meditate, saints, again and again on the body and blood of Jesus. And it's so interesting to me because don't you think communion is the most, is the most religious aspect of so many churches? You know, religious, you know, you have to have a priest administer to it. it you know, you have to do it in a particular way. You do it on a particular specific Sunday. You know, you, you know so many Christians don't even believe they can take communion themselves at home. Do you know that? There are many Christians who would feel awkward yeah. taking communion at home themselves, and that has to change. That has to change, you know. We need to each rediscover communion again and again and again and again to break out of this formality, this religious form, and understand what, that what makes us part of the household of God being in the presence of God is that he welcomed us in through Jesus' blood. It is only by the blood of Jesus that we know full forgiveness. We're completely forgiven because the blood of Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, was, was fully shed. You know, we're given that spotless robe of righteousness that Pastor Rod always reminds us because we need reminding. We should always be thankful for the freedom bought by this perfect blood. We have complete peace with God through his blood we're made completely acceptable to him because of the blood yeah. we can know intimate relationship with him because of the perfect peace that he brings through the blood and we can appropriate the power of the blood there's no situation that we see or find ourselves in or others in where the blood of Jesus has no effect because when Jesus died he had complete victory and let's remind ourselves of that in our households folks you know do we have an unbelieving son or daughter or somebody who's just like drifting a little bit? Let's apply the blood, you know. Do we have illness? Let's apply the blood. The blood of Jesus, it cleanses us from all sin. It cleanses us 
from all illness. It cleanses us because Jesus' blood is perfect. Yeah. He was the perfect sacrifice. Complete victory. Jesus didn't... I, I remember I was at a prayer meeting at school um, a couple of weeks ago, and um, there's, we do it partly on Zoom in here, actually. And um, Bobby, was, Bobby and I were there, and then there was a few parents on Zoom. It's a parent and teacher prayer meeting. And um, one of the parents was saying about some shoulder injury she's had, and, and Bobby said, oh, it, um, and, and, and Bobby said, oh, how's your shoulder? And she said, oh, it's 99% better. And Bobby was like, Jesus didn't die on the cross 99%. He wasn't there 99%. He 100% died on the cross. You know, he was 100% dead, and he poured his whole life out on the cross. So, let's think again briefly about Obed-Edom. The Lord blessed his household and everything he had to such a degree that he made the king, who had everything else apart from the manifest presence of God in his house, jealous in three months. Can you imagine? He was a poor Levite in some place just outside of Jerusalem. But David hears about it and he wants some of this. And why don't we let Obed-Edom's story become our story? Why don't we individually and together just, be, just keep mindful of the blood of Jesus, which brings us back into his presence and, and keeps us there? And I think, let's see what he will do. I think in three months we're going to look back and see the many blessings that he brings upon us. What's the Lord going to be, have done in three months in CTF? I tell you, if we meditate on his body and blood individually and corporately, we're going to see a move of God in this place. Amen. Because Jesus can't help but move when we, when we honor him and remember him in this way. As I was preparing this, you know, I, I was a bit, of a bit of a late one on it. You know, sometimes these things happen. It was a busy week and I had some of the message but not all of it. And, and this morning we could have followed this with communion. But actually, I think the Lord wants us to go home and have communion, each of us, individually in our secret place. And just take communion there and remind ourselves and give thanks to him and declare the blood of Jesus over our families, over our house, households, and over every aspect of our lives. And I'll tell you what, once you start getting in that habit of taking communion with him in the secret place, it's a, it's a habit... It's, it's a habit that becomes a practice, that becomes a lifestyle, which is full of the presence of God. And I don't think you'll ever want to stop. Think about Obed-Edom. You know, when the ark was moved from his house, he moved with it. He became a gatekeeper in the house of, in the tabernacle of David. So he became a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. So, let's, let's go home some point today or tomorrow, when the Lord leads, just take that bread and that wine and let's just celebrate what he's done to each of us, for each of us individually, for our families, for our whole households and for our whole household of faith. And let's bring some testimony back next week to just remi to remind ourselves how good he is. Amen. Amen. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday.